thank you. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. Wayne and Catherine Reynolds, this is just a, a wonderful program. We're enjoying it immensely. So I'm, I'm going to talk to you uh, about two topics, one science and the other about people that do science. The, the science I'm going to talk to you about is related to the mechanisms of how water crosses cell membranes. Water is refer, referred to often as the as the solvent of life. Seventy percent of our bodies are, are water. And sometime back in middle school, we learned about the process of osmosis, where a semi-permeable barrier separating two bodies of water will allow water to cross in the direction of the greater salt. In biology, this is catalyzed by the presence of the aquaporins. So at the end of my talk, you might, if you have a full bladder, think of aquaporin two. The, the other part, which is probably of greater relevance to the, the body as a whole, because most of us here are not scientists, is who makes discoveries and how do they do it? And the message that I hope to convey there is scientists never work alone. They have teams, they have fans, they have friends, they have colleagues, and they have an incredible amount of fun doing this. So it couldn't be a, a more exciting kind of career. So the aquaporins were um, uh, something uh, totally unfamiliar to us. And I, I grew up in a scientific family. My dad was a chemistry professor at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. We were Norwegian farmer types. But as a little child, I had the opportunity of putting hands on uh, test tubes in dad's lab and doing f simple little things that were just a lot of fun, changing the colors of indicator dyes. So I kind of grew up with this idea that I would become a scientist. But as, as, as many young people grow up, what your parents do is no longer cool at about sixth grade. And I remember a very pivotal year in my, my childhood at the, in sixth grade, uh, getting a report card where my, my, uh, my, in the category of uses time wisely, I was a failure. But in the category of plays well with others, I got a superior mark. And I think that's been something that has carried me throughout my, my career. And in, in high school, I, I really wasn't interested in science. I was involved in underground newspapers. I made a trip to Russia. And at the point I dropped out, I was actually carrying a D in chemistry, which was something my father, as a chemistry professor, was not altogether delighted with. But I enrolled in the little college, Augsburg College, where he taught in Minneapolis, with the idea that I'd become a medical doctor. Because I think we, we all have good memories of the, the medical doctors who took care of us when we were children. And dad, having been a chemistry professor, uh, graduated many medical doctors. And I thought this would be a, a wonderful thing to do. And so I majored in chemistry, but really as a mechanism to get into medical school. And in the application process to medical school, I had kind of an interesting experience when I applied to the University of Minnesota Medical School, where every applicant was required to take something called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It's about an hour and a half of tests about everything, then they ask you again. And in the interview phase, everything was fine. And I asked, the interviewer asked if I had any questions. I said, well, what did you learn about me from this MMPI exam? And he, he looked at my folder and he said, well, you lie more than the average person, <laughs> but you lie less than the average medical student. Which, I'm, I'm sorry to the medics here. Which probably is a good background for someone in biomedical research. So I actually enrolled at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, where two wonderful occurrences uh, 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 were experienced. First, I met Mary, my wife, who's been my biggest fan and encouraged me all along to pursue my love for bi what became my love, basic bi biomedical research. And the second was to get into a laboratory where biomedical research was no longer kind of esoteric and boring, but vibrant and interesting. Not just interesting because of what we were studying, but the people who did it. 
And I think, and this is my firm belief, that science, probably more than any other human endeavor, brings people together from completely different walks of life. Uh, our laboratory was run by uh, Pedro Cuatro Casas, the son of a South American botanist. My, my entry into the lab was catalyzed by my roommate, Van Bennett, who was an outstanding chemistry student at Stanford, also a big wave surfer from Hawaii. In the group, uh, Naji Sahuan, a, a Palestinian who grew up in a refugee camp in Lebanon, worked alongside Marv Siegel, a conservative Jew from Brooklyn, and they became the best of friends. Ignacio Sandoval, who had been just re recently released from prison in Spain for his anti-Franco activities, worked alongside Jean-Fredo Puca, who my wife will tell you is the most handsome person on God's green earth. He was, he, he was picked out of a crowd to be, play the role of a gigolo in some Italian film. And, and he came to our laboratory, what would you expect a handsome Italian film actor to pursue but the molecular basis of femininity? <laughs> I'm not making this up. He, he, he did the first purification of the estrogen receptor, receptor by affinity chromatography. And if you don't believe me, do the medline, Puca, Sica, Nola, and Bresciani, Nature, 1970. And of course, Gianfredo's presence in the lab, there was a constant stream of secretaries kind of sashaying down the hallway. It was very interesting and looked like a lot more fun than practicing medicine as I really originally thought I would do. So after joining the faculty as a blood specialist, we were working on the RH blood group antigen, and by total serendip, we identified a protein that had a totally unrelated function. I'd be glad to tell any of the young people the details over dinner. But it was a protein that was in red cells in huge amounts, never before seen because it doesn't stain with the usual protein stains. And we purified it, we got protein sequence, we cloned it out, we found it to be very abundant in renal tubules. So red cells, renal tubules, uh, what do they have in common? Um, we then found by searching the genome database, and Francis Collins this morning was telling us about the value of the genomes. Genomes were not known in 1990, but genes had been reported individually. And there were a series of genes from the roots of plants, function not known. So you can put all these things together, and the transport of water across cell membranes is one thing these, property, uh, these, these proteins uh, could possibly share. And it turned out, not known to me, that for a long time, physiologists had pondered, how does water get across the cell membrane? How does osmosis occur so rapidly in some tissues? So this was the first of the aquaporins, aquaporin 1. We now have 10 mammalian aquaporins. Aquaporins have been identified in every form of life, from the most primitive bacteria to all complex plants, and they have interesting functions. In humans, uh, the aquaporin 1 has many functions. One is to clear the amniotic fluid from our airways at the first breath of life. We talked about that this morning. Aquaporins are involved in that. Aquaporin 2 is the regulated water channel, which in our kidneys has, has some profound consequences we've all experienced. Now, I'm not suggesting anything, but tonight, some of the young people might be drinking beer late in the evening. And at the end of drinking a couple of liters of beer, where's the first place you stop? We, we all know it's the toilet, because you release large volumes of dilute urine. The next morning, tomorrow morning, uh, lying on bed, somewhat parched tongue, these same individuals will have very concentrated urine. This regulation of water permeability is fundamental to life, and this is conferred by aquaporin too. Aquaporin-4 in brain is very important. We think this can be manipulated to prevent brain edema. After head trauma, 
or a stroke. The demise is usually the swelling of brain tissues. Aquaporin-5, important in sweat. The heat wave last summer in France, 15,000 people died. Older people who probably have a, a diminished ability to regulate body temperature by sweating. Aquaporin-7 and 9 involved in the transfer of glycerol. Glycerol, very similar to water. Released from fat, taken up by the liver, converted to glucose to prevent us from becoming hypoglycemic during starvation. Bacteria have these. The Plasmodium falciparum of malaria has aquaporins. We're now pursuing this as a potential drug target. Plants have these, the uptake of water from the rootlets of plants, the desiccation of seeds. So it's really, I think, a nice illustration of a simple observation by a kind of a part-time uh, scientist, hematologist dropout, can, 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 with a lot of colleagues and a lot of friends, I think, change how science occurs. And I think every scientist is involved in something that's worthwhile. So just in brief, in closing, I'd like to just say some of the funny events that have occurred in our lives since the call from Stockholm in October. First off, I, the, the phone call informed me I'd received, the, it was the chemistry prize, not, not the medical prize. And my first thought was, I think they have the wrong guy. I'm a medical doctor, not a chemist. But I, I was certainly in no position to argue. Uh, <laughs> And life became very exciting. The press showed up on our doorstep. And my, my wife, Mary, called my, my mother, Ellen Swedberg. Ellen is a high school graduate from South Dakota. She's never been that impressed with, with academics, probably being married to my dad. Uh, and her words when Mary told her that, that her son was going to share the Nobel Prize was, that's very nice, but tell him not to go to his, let it go to his head. But, but life was pretty funny. I got to the university. The university president was there to greet me. I had no idea we were such good friends. And, <laughs> and, and the voicemail system was jam-packed with, with, with messages from, from colleagues and, and journalists. In one very familiar voice, our colleagues from Norway, and I remember distinctly the voice said, Peter, Peter, we've just heard the news. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and after a pause, it came back on, oh, no, no, it's, it's very believable. But when I got home that evening, our, our daughter Carly, we have four children, three of them are now in college and beyond. The youngest is in ninth grade, uh, was home, and, and I asked her, Carly, I hope they haven't pestered you a lot about this in school. And she said the most amazing thing, Daddy, my friends tell me this is so cool. I don't think I'll ever hear that again. But then she said, but Daddy, really famous people are on The Simpsons, like George Lucas, you know, people, <laughs> and you're not. So with that, I'd like to thank you. I, I, it says stop, so I guess there's no time for questions. No time for questions. Well, thank you. I'll have a seat then.